Well, our passage today is Acts chapter 21 again. That's what we were in two weeks ago. We're going to look at verses 1 through 30, but not all at the same time. We'll do the first 14 verses, though, to start. Would you stand as we read God's word together? Acts 21, verses 1 through 14. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to cost, then the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went to board and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were with Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied, and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you've done in blessing us. We ask that you would help us to understand these verses and more and that you would help us to apply them appropriately and, and properly to our lives. Thank you, Lord, just for the opportunity to be here to worship together. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, the first portion, this portion, we covered two weeks ago when we asked the question, what is New Testament prophecy? How did it fit in with Old Testament prophecy? Were there any differences? What were the similarities and more? And we're back in this section again because I didn't have time to answer a different related question at that time, which was, should Paul have gone to Jerusalem? Now, that may seem like a silly question because Paul's answer to everyone's concern in verse 13 is, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So clearly he had a Christ-oriented attitude. Also, this is the Apostle Paul isn't attempting to assume that every decision that he made was inspired and infallible. It's hard to imagine Paul even making a poor decision or sinning, particularly um, when those decisions are motivated by a desire to sacrifice for the name of Jesus. But there is something that has always nagged at me and, and some other passages as well that are connected. And I spent some time this week trying to figure out if it's nagged anybody else any other commentators, for example, as well. And it's what we find in verse 4. 
When Paul and the others arrived at Tyre, waiting for a ship to take them further south, they met with some believers there who, verse 4 says, told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Now, if Luke had not added those words through the Spirit, we would have simply read that as concerned church members and friends who were pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Well, interestingly, in the previous chapter, in chapter 20, verse 23, Paul comments to the Ephesian elders that the Holy Spirit testified in city after city about what would happen to Paul in Jerusalem. And then more significant here in chapter 21, the prophet Agabus travels from Judea up, you know, down to Paul at Tyre to tell him what will happen if he continues on his journey. And a good question is why? Why? Is it that repeatedly, not just once, but repeated, city after city, does the Spirit tell Paul what is going to happen? And then entire, several disciples tell him through the Spirit actually not to go to Jerusalem. Well, I mentioned a, a moment ago checking to see if that had nagged at any other commentators, and it has. Probably the one who speaks the most about it is the late James Montgomery Boyce, who comments on Acts 22, I'll share those in just a moment, but I want to set up that passage here for you. In Acts 22, Paul is speaking to the crowd in Jerusalem. He's been taken captive, and, and he summarizes what has brought him to this point as an explanation of why he's there. And he starts with mentioning his conversion and then says these words in verses 17 through 22. He says, "Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. And so I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles." Now, this is what Boyce says about this passage. He says, I consider this reference to Paul's return to Jerusalem to be ambiguous because Paul speaks first about his conversion at Damascus in the verses immediately before. And so it's natural to, to possibly think that when he says, when I return to Jerusalem, to think that it was shortly after that conversion experience and that maybe the visit that he describes is when he came down and met the apostles. Boyce says, on the other hand, when we look back to what we have already been told in Acts, we don't find anything that suggests such a warning at that earlier time. In other words, Luke doesn't describe anything like that at Paul's first visit. So Boyce thinks it's far more likely, he says, I would say almost certain that Paul meant his final visit to Jerusalem, not the earlier one, and that that possibility fits the context of these chapters best. So I just want you to know there are commentators struggling with trying to figure out this very question. Boyce believed that the Holy Spirit's warning to Paul came upon this last return to Jerusalem because it fits the context of the disciples speaking through the Spirit, telling him not to go, of all the warnings in city after city, and then Agabus actually traveling up, or I guess the direction would be down, from Judea to Tyre, and then the disciples at Tyre and more. Well, the question, one of the questions today is, was Boyce right? Was Paul being stubborn? Was he not heeding the Spirit's warnings? Well, I want you to hold that thought for a moment, and let me bring up one more 
concerning subject. It's, it's what comes out in verses 15 to 25 of our morning's passage in Acts 21. Verse 15 starts, And after those days we packed up and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nascent of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed? And they are all zealous for the law. But they've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So, you know, we've, you've probably read that section many times, and I want you to think a little more intently about what's happening in that particular section. Paul arrives... In Jerusalem, he meets with the local elders, the same ones whom he met with at the Jerusalem council back in Acts chapter 15. And the elders tell him, the local Jews who are converts to Christianity, they believe that Paul is going around telling other Jewish converts to forsake Moses. And what that meant was, that they thought that Paul was telling Jewish converts in Gentile cities that they didn't have to follow the Old Testament law and its rituals. Is that what Paul had said? Well, partly yes and partly no. What he had said was that the follower of Jesus is justified by faith, not by the works under the law. He'd also said the law is wonderful, but the law doesn't save us. And as for ceremonies and rituals, these do not win God's favor, and most of them were made obsolete with the superior eternal sacrifice of Christ. So the leaders, though, make a proposal. They said, four men, and we have to understand, these men have taken what's known as a Nazarite vow. We'll look at that in just a second. But it was a vow taken by men or women who desired to set themselves apart for a specific task, a service, Maybe some great moment of, of faithfulness. And so they symbolized this through what was called the Nazarite vow. And we learn about that in number six. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink, neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. 
All the days of his vow, no separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. So why was a Nazarite required not to drink anything made from grapes, not even to eat it, not to cut his or her hair? It's because these abstentions would would be these visible symbols of someone that was set apart for a, a very special service for a time. You were also not to go near or touch a dead body. You may remember the story of Samson, for example. He was a Nazarite from birth, not to cut his hair, not to touch a dead body like the lion, etc. Well, when the Nazarite vow was fulfilled, there was a seven-day purification that took place. And so the Nazarite shaved his or her head on the seventh day. And then on the eighth day, we see in verses 13 and following, when the days of this separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall present his offering to the Lord. So this is what the elders were asking Paul to not only pay for, but to join in with these four men who have purified themselves. It is that they shall offer one male lamb in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering, one ram without blemish as a peace offering. You can see how all the offerings of the Old Testament are all being put together during this purification moment. One ram without blemish is a peace offering, a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, their grain offering, their drink offerings. The Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And upon the burnt offering and sin offering, all that, the, the hair was added as consecrated to the Lord and burnt. So the reason why I asked you to look at this more intently is to to say, well, what are they really asking Paul to do here? They're saying, Paul, take these four men, be purified with them, pay for their expenses in the process. That way, the people that are complaining about you will recognize there's no need to be concerned that you are teaching the Jewish people to forsake the Mosaic law. Because they're going to see you still participating in its rituals. Go through the eighth-day ceremonies of a burnt offering, a sin offering, a peace offering, a thank offering, grain offering, and if the people see you, they'll know you honor the ceremonies. And you might be wondering, well, how would that be any different than when Paul had Timothy circumcised? After all, given that Timothy was Jewish, Paul had done that so as not to create a stumbling block for Jewish believers as Paul writes in Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails the believer in Christ anything. So circumcising Timothy didn't mean anything for him personally. And Timothy was willing to go through that process because he didn't want to have an obstacle between him and the Jewish people who still thought that circumcision meant something. So is that the same thing that's happening here? Well, I think what we need to wrestle with in this passage is that what the elders are suggesting is a far more serious matter than just circumcision. In verse 20, they are describing what they call myriads of Jewish converts to Christianity who are zealous for the law. 
And we understand what that means when they suggest that Paul go through the ritual sacrifices for purification. What they're saying is zealous for the law means they're wanting to observe all that the law required in the Old Testament context. It's ceremonies, it's rituals, and more. But what did that communicate? It communicated saved by grace, but kept by the law. It's as if they said, Paul, when they go to make a sin offering, you pay for the animal, go up with them. That way the people will stop complaining about you. And Paul agrees. And it's, we wonder, is this the same Paul who writes in Galatians 1, I marvel that you're turning so far so away from so him so soon who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And we come out of a passage like that, we say, well, shouldn't Paul have said to the elders, I understand your concerns. You know how much I want there to be unity between the Jewish people and the Gentiles And I want there to be an understanding, but we cannot compromise the gospel. We cannot communicate by our actions. You say that these four men, they're zealous for the law. We can't communicate that being zealous for the law is the same thing as being zealous for Christ. We need to teach that while the law is beautiful and perfect, that the ceremonies under the law were but shadows of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And there is no more need for animal sacrifice. There is no more need for purification. In fact, to actually perform these and teach that a Christian should still do them will undermine the very gospel itself. That's what I I think, you know, as I read Galatians 1 that Paul should have said. I'm not sure why he didn't at this juncture, except that I know how Paul loved the Jewish nation. I know how much he wanted there to be unity between the Jew and the Gentile. I know this is the man who in Corinthians speaks about being all things to all people in order to win some. I also know that this is Jerusalem, which is nearly entirely made up of Jewish converts to Christianity. This wasn't, for example, Antioch, made up of Gentile and Jew, where clashes between the two groups of Jew and Gentile were common in the church. And Paul goes up to Peter and opposes Peter for being hypocritical when he separates himself from the, Jewish, from the Gentile people at a meal. But still, isn't it incredibly hard to understand why Paul doesn't say something like that to the leaders here? Or even what he writes in Galatians 3. Before faith, we were kept under guard by the law. We were kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Again, love the law, but let us be zealous for Christ. It was the law that brought us to him. Therefore, the law was our tutor that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So I think that's why that has nagged at me. Maybe you still don't see a huge difference between what Paul did with Timothy and what he's doing here in Acts 21. Let me just give you a few additional thoughts. One, and really what we should recognize 
in that particular second half of that passage. Christians do not need to be purified. You may wonder with Paul participating in that, is that still something we should be doing? Well, it's true that we are told to confess our sins to one another and to God, but in confessing, we are also agreeing with the Lord that the blood of Jesus Christ, which was said for us, has purified us. So to go through a separate purification ritual, especially one that's not recognizing uh, the work of Christ, would deny his work. Two, Christians should not offer sacrifices. That's probably absolutely simplistic and obvious today. Uh, I know you don't, after reading Acts 21, think you're going to go and do something differently at home. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, animal sacrifice was a type and a shadow of the perfect once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. When a person brought a sin offering, what did they do? They brought an animal to the priest, they laid their hand upon the head of that animal, they confessed their sin, and then the animal was killed as a substitutionary sacrifice for that sin. So to offer such a sacrifice would be to deny the perfect atonement of Christ for your sin. And three, as many, many commentators suggest, this may be a a possible proof, what they say, that Paul was wrong in actually agreeing with the Jewish elders is that the Lord, who is sovereign over the details of our lives, actually did not allow him to do it. That's what we'll find here in just a moment. In fact, let's read the conclusion in Acts 21, starting with verse 26. It says, Then Paul took them in, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering would be made for each one of them. So that's that's what we were reading in Numbers chapter 6. So they've gone through that initial purification ritual, Paul with them, Now they're going in to give the offering. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. They thought that was probably one of these four men. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So, God decrees that a mob will seize Paul, drag him out of the temple just before he goes in to make these sacrifices. Talk about an intervention here. And so I want to return to the question for this morning, should Paul have gone to Jerusalem? Well, if the answer is no, as Boyce and some others think, then at worst, I think, at worst, we have someone who was willing to die for Jesus, but who failed to realize that Jesus was not requiring that of him. We would then need to see the earlier warnings and attempts to divert Paul, perhaps even the vision that Paul has in Jerusalem as Jesus telling him, not to die. And so the issue would not be martyrdom for so much for Paul as a question of obedience or listening. And I think by way of application, 
we need to realize how often we justify our own stubbornness and failure to listen to counsel by saying that we have good intentions. We say, I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing to suffer anything. I'm even willing to die for Jesus. But what we really mean is, I want to do what I want to do regardless. If Paul should have not gone to Jerusalem, then that would suggest that Paul, in not being fully submitted in that particular sense to the Holy Spirit's direction, found himself in a compromising situation. And the application there would be that often when we step outside of God's direction, when we fail to heed the counsel in our life that maybe the the Lord is using other people to speak wisdom into our lives, when we step outside that direction, we often open ourselves up to greater temptations. God happened to step into this situation and said that he would not let Paul go forward with those offerings. And I am thankful that the Lord sometimes saves us from ourselves, right? When we're attempting to do wrong things with with good motives. Another way to look at that application is that in our moments of highest spiritual motivation, we need to especially be aware of error. What I mean by that is we can get so caught up in zeal in enthusiasm that we become blinded to good judgment. And we just step forward, you know, God's going to bless all of this. Well, not always. We still need to exercise wisdom. We still need to listen to multiple counselors. So that's if the answer is no. If the answer is yes, he should have gone to Jerusalem. Then putting aside that later issue of potential compromise with that Nazarite vow, what we would see in Paul is a willingness to give up everything, especially his life for the sake of Christ. That's true regardless. Uh, In any other way, we we need to see this as an admirable quality in Paul. And, you know, I think as an application for that is, have you ever had the desire to risk everything or be used for something great for the kingdom of God But then when you heard how much it would cost, and by cost, I just don't mean financial cost, but also emotional, physical cost, whatever, that you found yourself changing your mind and deciding not to go through with it. Or have you gotten past the idea of cost, but when you started to hear the pleas of family and friends, don't undergo that risk, don't do it, you eventually changed your mind. Because what we would see if Paul was right in going up to Jerusalem is that in city after city, Paul's closest friends, together with multiple churches, even a prophet, all not only told him about risk, but actually gave him the certainty of what was going to happen. And he must have wrestled with that thought. We know he says to them finally, you know, you're breaking my heart, continuing to beg me not to go. The application here would be we are not to be pleasers of men, even the ones we love the most. As Paul writes in Galatians 1.10, I, do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And that, that's more than just, you know, if I pleased men and tried to do things that would please them and live in a, a worldly 
uh, way that I would not be serving Christ wholeheartedly. I think we can also apply this here. If I, if I listen to some of the warnings like of my friends and, and others that are pleading with me not to do this, I would not find myself wholeheartedly sold out to sacrifice for the Lord. So Paul at least believed that he was serving the Lord. Whether it was a right judgment or not, he believed he was serving the Lord. And this is something we must ask ourselves. How willing are we to give up everything for Christ? Are you willing to do what God desires of you at any cost? Well, then let me go a little deeper on to say that we already know many things that the Lord requires of us. Things that are clearly laid out in his word. So let's not just think about some big thing like, oh man, if I heard that big thing, that big task that God wanted me to do, I would be willing to go to this island and preach the gospel. Well, you have laid out for you a hundred things in God's word that he desires of you. To grow, for example, in love and joy and peace and long-suffering, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Will you give up the things that are keeping you from growing in that at any cost? Perhaps as we've been wrestling with the rightness or the wrongness of Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem, you've wondered, well, if Paul is wrong, let's say, let's say the answer was no. If Paul was wrong, what might have been different if he had stayed away and kept ministering to the churches? Oh, I can't, what if, right? What, what if he had gotten to go to Spain and, and further on like he had hoped? Would things have been better? Well, let me say this. How do we know that something is God's will? On a very simple basis, we know that something is God's will because it has happened. And what I mean by that is, God is not surprised. He doesn't react to our decisions and then constantly come up with plan B. Right? We can, on the one level, say, for example, that it's God's will that we should not sin or that Paul should not have gone to Jerusalem, if that was true. But we can also be confident on another level, the deeper level of what is called God's secret or decreed of will, that the fact that we do sin or the fact that Paul went to Jerusalem was not only allowed by God, but decreed and made a part of God's plan A before it was ever done. Paul went to Jerusalem. It happened. That's how we know it was God's will. We... We, in our own finiteness, we can always hypothesize different scenarios and come up with what-ifs, all we want. But we can be confident that God's will is being done and that he's not surprised and that he's not having to adjust and make new directions. The next several chapters of Acts describe exactly how God used Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem. Think about the people with whom he shared the gospel. Chapter 24, Governor Felix. Chapters 25 and 26, Paul testifies to the Governor Festus and King Agrippa. At the end of Acts, we learn that Paul testified to the Imperial Roman Guard. And in his letter to the Philippians, he tells us that some of them and some of those in the royal palace converted to Christianity. If you find that you have made a poor decision, here's why I said these things. If you find that you have made a poor decision, you may be facing the consequences of that decision. 
But do not lose heart because God always can use your failures for his glory. He can give you new opportunities to serve, new opportunities to be faithful, even new opportunities to make better decisions in the future because our God is good. So take courage, follow him, die to yourself, don't be a man pleaser. Seek after good counsel. Follow the direction of the Holy Spirit, especially when you are zealous for the things of God. Pray for God's mercy and ultimately do all things for God's glory, that his will may be done. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for your word and and thankful for these types of passages that are hard ones, that we have to struggle through, we have to ask good questions but not just for the exercise of trying to to figure out if Paul was right or wrong or should or should not have gone to Jerusalem, but ultimately to ask, what does that say about what we should be doing in our own lives? How do we follow your spirit? What do we need to be aware of? And and ultimately, Lord, the reminder that we must not be man-pleasers, but we must desire to serve you and follow you, no matter what the cost. So I thank you for these things and and pray for your ongoing direction and wisdom in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.